God is good, isn't he? So let me tell you something. If you're new to the church, we absolutely love God's word. This is all about Jesus Christ. We, we want to point to Jesus and everything we do, and we want anybody who comes into these doors to fall in love with Jesus, well, first to be introduced to Jesus and then to fall in love with Jesus, and we love God's word because that's the power to transform lives, and so we don't do church just to do it. We don't do church just as a fun get-together. We do church because we believe that God wants to transform lives, transform communities, and, and change the world, and he uses the church to do that, and he does it through his word, and so we absolutely love God's word here at New Heights Church. So, if you got your Bible, again, I hope you do. If you didn't bring it this time, bring it next week. And if you don't have a Bible, come see one of us. We'll get you a Bible. We want everybody to have a Bible. But did you know, I I read some very alarming statistics. Did you know that around 4,500 churches closed, evangelical churches closed in 2019? That's, that's pretty alarming. Over 4,500 evangelical churches closed in 2019. This, this was the last year uh, data was available according to LifeWay Research. So the number of churches in the U.S. did not grow for the first time since the company started studying this topic. Now this is prior to COVID-19, just so you're wondering. This was before COVID-19, because a lot of you are going to say, well, that's COVID-19. No, our numbers have really gone down since COVID-19. But before COVID-19, this is where the American church was. This long-running trend of people moving away from religion, and then a younger generation abandoning Christianity altogether, is one of the primary reasons for the decline of churches. In 2017, LifeWay Research surveyed young adults. This, this is a hard stat, At least it just does not settle with me very well. But they surveyed young adults ages between 18 and 22 who had attended church regularly, weekly, and found that 70% of them had stopped attending church altogether. 70%. Now Pew Research found that the number of Americans who identified as Christians was 64% in 2020, with 30% of the U.S. population being classed as religiously unaffiliated. Stephen uh, Bullivant, in his book, Nonverts, The Making of Ex-Christian America, said that in the Christian world, the change has been generational. With grandparents being regular churchgoers, their children believing in God but not attending church regularly, and millennials having little experience or relationship with church-going or religion at all. So, you know, the decline of churches in the U.S., it's, it's a critical issue right now. It's real. It's what we're facing. It's reshaping the country's religious landscape for sure. Thousands of churches closing each year. Religious organizations and pastors all of a sudden are faced with this very difficult and hard decisions and challenges. How do you keep your congregations alive? What do you do? This is a reality, and unfortunately, it's caused some pastors, instead of going back to God's plan for the church, they've become very creative at attracting new people. Now, can I just take a pause for a minute? Now, if you look around, we've got a lot of empty seats that we need to get full. We need them full. But if you've been around long enough, you know that they're, they're starting to fill. So as I, I read this, I couldn't help but thank God. So this is the trend going around. Did you know we've grown in the year 2022? In the year 2022, our church has seen significant growth. That's amazing. That's something to, to praise God about, isn't it? And it's not just about filling the seats. If it was just like, hey, we're drawing in all these people, it's great, we're starting to fill the seats, and we're not seeing life change, and we got nothing to celebrate. 
But I'm telling you, the letters are coming in more and more of people whose lives are being changed, and that's worth celebrating. A life that is changed, that's worth celebrating. That is pretty neat. So I am thankful that God is moving in our church, and we're seeing growth. I think a month ago, we saw our highest, we had the, the best attendance we've had, except for two Sundays since I've been here, and those two Sundays were Easter. So God is doing something, and we're excited for that, but we want to see more life change. That's why we exist. Look at all these empty seats. Let's fix that right? Amen? We need to fix it. But I'll tell you, I will not resort to finding interesting ways to fill these seats. Won't get away from preaching God's word. Won't preach messages that might entertain people more, draw in more of a crowd. Won't do it. I'm going to keep preaching God's word. And uh, I won't rely heavily on marketing to grow this church. I just won't do it. Now, I heard this story in a sermon, and I I Googled it just to confirm that it was true, that it really happened, and it did. There was one pastor who transformed the church sanctuary (laughs) into a bull ring. (laughs) A bull ring. And for the Wednesday night service, this pastor rode on a bull until he was bucked off. He only lasted a few seconds, and then after he was bucked off, he went to the pulpit, and he actually preached a sermon. Now, he did draw on a crowd this particular Sunday, you know, advertising, we're going to have a rodeo in the church. But the following Sunday, they actually saw a decline in, in their uh, church attendance. Man, it's a far cry from the original church. The original church was a movement centered around a mission. I say it all the time. You've heard me say this, and I'll, I'll keep being repetitive. The mission came first. The mission was given in Acts 1. We know that the church didn't form until Acts 2. And I absolutely love the saying that God doesn't have a mission for his church. He made a church for his mission. So if that's the truth, then that means a church that is not on mission is not really a church. And to take it even further, believers who are not on mission are not really part of the true church. Acts 1 showed us a few things. We've, we, we looked at Acts 1. It shows us how uh, this movement was pushed forward. We see the disciples, their, their lives are transformed. We see that they were all about the message all of a sudden about Jesus Christ. They got it. They understood it. They're all for it. And they were completely Holy Spirit-led. Completely. Have you ever been captured by the message like the disciples were? You look at Acts 1 and you see this life transformation. Has the Bible or the message, the gospel, has it truly captured uh, you? Are, you? are you captured by it? Not just do you approve of it or, yeah, I agree with it, but have you been captured by the gospel? And are you Holy Spirit-led? Do you know what it means to walk with him, to be filled by the Holy Spirit? Do you fellowship with the Holy Spirit? Do you move in the power of the Holy Spirit? Is Christianity simply religion to you, or is it a relationship or, or an interaction with the Spirit of God? One of my prayers and my, my deepest hopes over this next year as we study the book of Acts is that New Heights Church becomes more and more led by the Holy Spirit. I want to see New Heights Church become more and more led by the Holy Spirit. Maybe that means we get away from, from the schedule sometimes. I mean, maybe it means we open up the altars and we, see the, we invite people to pray. And maybe the Holy Spirit takes over and people spend more than 10, 5 minutes at the altar praying. Maybe it, it's the Holy Spirit leads us to, to really pursue Him and seek Him and give up everything, our, our schedules, our agendas, 
maybe even our reputation, to see the Holy Spirit move. I mean, I, I am so challenged reading the book of Acts and seeing how much this early church was led by the Holy Spirit. This is why I love the book of Acts. It's what the entire book is about, living and moving and walking in the Spirit. And as we go through the book of Acts, and I, I've been praying, I want, I want us as a church to really grasp and understand what the church was then and what it's intended to be now. I'm always shocked when I hear, hear this, uh, and I'm hearing more and more people say this, as it seems like my generation loves this. I don't, uh, Jesus, yes, church, no. Hear that. A lot of my friends who I grew up with in the church, uh, I don't need the church. Jesus, yeah, church, no. Love Jesus, but I don't care for his people. All I need is Jesus, but I don't need his church. Now, my dad used to tell me that this was a saying that became popular in the 60s. I don't know if he's accurate, but he says in the 60s, Jesus, yes, church, no. There was this countercultural movement that took place, and there's this idea to break away from the established church. And they reject the idea of organized uh, Christianity. And, and all I could say to this is, here's the thing. Jesus loves the church. In fact, he gave himself for the church. See, here's the crazy thing. Most of these folks who want to argue with me, I'm talking about my own personal friends now that I've grown up with who have taken this approach. They, they want to argue almost from a theological perspective. It's almost like they want to prove to me from the Bible that they don't need church. You're being religious, Justin, by saying that I and my family, we need to become a part of a church. Well, the problem with that is if you're a student of the Bible, you're going you're gonna to know that what God is doing in the world today, he's doing in and through and by the church. It's his plan. The Bible describes the church with all kinds of different images. One, one is that the church is the body of Christ. And he's the living head, and we're all united to him, and each one of us are members of this body, and we, we get our direction from the Lord, so we need to be tied into Christ and the church. Do you get that? The body of Christ in the world today is the church. Another image I like from the Bible is that the church is the bride of Christ. So we're bought with a price, and we belong to him, and one day we're going to be caught up to meet, it, meet our heavenly bridegroom. It's descriptive language there. So, G, so he's the head of the church and the groom of the bride, and one day we'll, we'll be caught up as a church without blemish and without spot, and I can't wait. So you have to go, some of you are saying, well, man, what's Pastor Justin saying? Is he actually saying you have to go to church to be a Christian? No, it's not what I'm saying, but you have to go to church to be a good Christian. <laughs> you got to go to church to be a good, you have to go to church to be a mature, vibrant, healthy Christian. You can't isolate yourself from the church and expect to have a healthy, meaningful relationship with God. You can't deny the brothers and the sisters of God and be properly related to God as your Father in heaven. Love the passage in Hebrews, and this is one we, we quote. I, I've heard this all my life, but Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, it says, Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We need to be in the church. We need to be with the church. We need to be a part of a church and in fellowship with a church. So yeah, you can be a Christian without a church. You can. But like people without homes, those who are homeless are not healthy. You need a church. 
Now, when I say church, and, and the word appears in the New Testament, what do I mean? Uh, we've talked about it before, what the Greek word for church means. It's this called out assembly. We are the called of Jesus, called out of the world and called unto God and called to one another. And one day we will be called to heaven. We are the called out people of God. Now, you need to understand this. The early church, they had no buildings, at least not in the sense of what we would consider church buildings today. In fact, first century Christians were pretty persecuted. I think that's, that's what eventually led to buildings becoming a part of us regularly meeting. They were persecuted quite a bit, and as a result, they often met in, in secret. So in the early church, they were often meeting in homes. Now, as the influence of Christianity began to become more and more influential, and boy, did it, <laughs> persecution didn't stop it. It just kept spreading. It was like a fire they couldn't put out. That's what the Holy Spirit can do. As it began to become more and more influential, they, they eventually had buildings dedicated to worship, and these buildings became what you and I would know today as a church. You know, if you ask a little kid, what, what is a church? They're going to they're gonna think of a building. But it's so important that we understand that the church consists of people, not buildings. Okay, Fellowship, worship, and ministry are all conducted by people, not buildings. Church structures facilitate the role of God's people, but they do not fulfill it. And here's what you got to understand, too. The church is not a spectator sport. It requires the collaboration. It requires the involvement of all. It's a team activity. If you have put your faith in Jesus, then you're called a part of the church, and you have a purpose. And it's not just to come on a Sunday. Someone who says they don't need the church, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be real bold today, is someone who's selfish. That's a selfish statement to say. I don't need the church. Because you, if you really believe that, if you don't think you need the church, and you don't realize what the church is, the mission of God is done through the church. And when somebody understands this, it becomes the difference between somebody who just goes to church and somebody who realizes, I am the church. Do you understand that? It's God's people on this earth. So here we come to this text today. Pentecost happens. It's very powerful. But now what we go through the rest of the book of Acts, and we're going to see God working in these incredible, very powerful ways, and we see the gospel advance. And, and why this is so important is that we find ourselves in the text today, and it's going to answer the question, how? How? So the Holy Spirit comes. The gospel is advanced in, in, in all kinds of incredible ways. How? How does it do it? And our text answers that question today. How does the church, the movement of people, God's called out people, fulfill the mission it was created for? And it actually begins in verse 41. We read that last week. And it ends in verse 47. We're not going to even look at verse 47 today. But it starts in verse 41. It ends in verse 47. And, and both have as a statement about how the Lord is adding people to the church. And that's important. I don't want you to miss that. The Lord is adding people to church. Verse 41 says, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added. Notice the passive. The Lord did the adding here. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And then in verse 47, it says, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I need you to pick up on this. God is doing the adding. You see that? It kind of reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18. He said, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, and I love the Greek because the Greek, uh, it's almost better translated pebble. 
think about that. He's going to use Peter to build the church, but he's letting Peter know he's just a pebble. And I tell you, you are Peter. You are a pebble, and on this, or on this pebble, I will build my church. I, 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 do you see that? I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I shall build my church. Man, I am 40 years young, grew up in the church, studied at Bible college, went to seminary, and I was driving the other day and listening to the Bible on, on the radio, and it was this verse, and that just stood out to me. I will build my church. And you know what? At 40 years old, it meant a whole lot to me. It means I don't have to build his church. This is God's church. He's going to build it. All I got to do is be faithful to God's word, faithful to God's plan. God's going to do the building. I think God's sick and tired of me coming to him and saying, I'm not good enough. Can't do it. I don't have the leadership skills. I don't have, I don't have all of these. I can't do it. God's saying, it's my church. I will do the building. Now let me say this to you. Let me, let me bring it down to your level. I, do you know how many times I have people say, I can't do that. Uh, I won't. No, 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 I can't do that. That's not me. It's not my gift. Look. God's called you to be a part of the church. He's called, called you to be active in the church. And God is going to stretch you and God wants to use you. And it's going to be God who builds the church. That should encourage you. God is the one who builds the church. It's God. Man, I love this verse, especially in the Greek, because it's so powerful. The literal translation could be this. Jesus says, I will build those who are mine, who are called out, and not even death can overcome it. Take a minute and think about that. I will build my gathering and not even death will overcome it. When we're a part of the gathering of Jesus, the gathering that Christ wants to build that is founded on his death, his burial, his resurrection, when we have commonality and unity in what we believe and what we hold true in the truth of the Bible, then what's going to happen is that even when we die, that unity, that commonality, that community will not be broken. It'll just be furthered because we have this commonality and unity in heaven. That's powerful. Think about it. Verse 39, it emphasizes the same, same thing here in chapter 2. It says, For the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God does what? Calls to himself. God builds the church. Now, between these two statements is this description of how the church lived after they had been added or after they had been called. And verse 42 pretty much serves as a summary statement, and then Luke unpacks it more in detail in verses 43 through 47, which we'll look at next week. But today we're just looking at verse 42. Before we do it, let's pray. God, we love you and we worship you. We praise you. We're so uh, excited and thrilled to be part of, a, uh, of this community, to be called out by you and to have the privilege and the responsibility is to fulfill and carry out your mission. So God, I pray that you would do what I can that the Holy Spirit would enlighten us today as we, as we preach your word, we look at your text, the Holy Spirit will, will enlighten us, that we will apply these truths to our life and we will see transformation. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Look with me at verse 42. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Right here in one verse, we've got four responsibilities. Verse 42 says that they believed, or that the believers were devoted. 
They were devoted. This is serious stuff. It's, it's they earnestly persisted in four things, four responsibilities. They gave themselves to, they abandoned themselves to these things unselfishly. They did this in response to the gospel. It was a natural reaction to Jesus' gospel. If you really believe the gospel, you'll do these things. You'll be a part of fulfilling these things. Number one, the apostles' teaching. Number two, fellowship. Number three, to the breaking of bread. Number four, to praying. Each of these four things turns up one way or another in the following verses. We're going to see that next week. But let's see how Luke unpacks these responsibilities. A couple things I want to say. First of all, I already said it, but it's Jesus' church. Church belongs to Jesus. Not you, not me, not us. It belongs to Jesus belongs to him, so we want to hear from him. We want to follow him, obey him, and love and serve the church because Jesus loved the church and he serves the church. In addition, the evidence of the Holy Spirit, the marks of the church are not religious traditions on things we do for God, okay? It's the Holy Spirit putting the life of Jesus in us and calling us and compelling us with really great enthusiasm and joy to have certain evidence of this new life in Jesus. That's what this is. Sometimes we read the book of Acts and we focus on all the wrong things and we miss the whole big picture here. I want you to see this, that this is evidence of the baptism with the Holy Spirit right here, what we're about to talk about. This is evidence that someone's full of the Holy Spirit, overflowing with the Holy Spirit. Look with me at the marks of a healthy church. Number one, the apostles' doctrine. The apostles' doctrine. And I, 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 don't, I can't get it in, into it this week because it's just too much, but we're gonna talk about uh, the apostles. We're going to talk about the, the original 12 apostles, and we're going to talk about um, the different succession plan that God had in the early church for pastors and teachers, but, but we don't see a succession plan for these, these original 12 apostles, and there's a reason for that, and, and I'm just kind of giving you a preview here that we'll get into that, but we can't today. Today, there are a lot of people that love to claim this title, and, and again, Normally, I wouldn't address it, but I am going to address it in this, in this series because sometimes these people who claim this title, I think it can be unhealthy for the church. And I think you've got to be really careful as followers of Jesus, especially in the year 2023, because we live in a different world than, you know, well, just even 20 years ago. Now we can get on, online anytime we want, and we can watch about anything on any teaching on any part of the Bible. And you've got to be really careful that everything that you're feeding yourself with aligns with God's Word, okay? Because there's a lot of false teachers out there, and there's a lot of false teaching going on. You've got to make sure that what you're feeding yourself is aligning with God's Word. But for today, we're going we're gonna to pass on this, and I'll just, I'll just say this, that... Uh, when it says they were committed to the apostles' teaching, it's they were committed to the study of the Word of God. Okay? So the Scriptures, I love how D.L. Moody says this. D.L. Moody says, The Scriptures were not given to increase our knowledge, but to change our lives. Now, this is why we preach God's Word. Not just to get, not just an academic experience, but God's Word truly changes lives. It does. In fact, Pastor Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary Chapel, he used to tell his pastors when they would go out and church plant, and Calvary Chapel, one of their distinctives is we do verse-by-verse preaching. And so every, and especially in the early days, all these church pa- pastors or church planters that would go out, they were told to, they had to be a part of a church for a while at first, two or three years, and then they would say, yeah, I feel called to go plant a church in this part of California, or I'm going to go to Minneapolis and plant a church. And they, they would literally say, you got your Bible? All right, now go. 
Not, okay, we're gonna pay you for three years. We're gonna pay for your church building. Nope, you got your Bible. Go find a job in the city you feel called to and start a Bible study and start from there because we want the DNA to be all about God's word, centered around God's word. And they would go out. And sometimes these, these pastors would call up Pastor Chuck Smith and, and they would say, Pastor, nothing is happening. I've been preaching God's word. I've been preaching verse by verse. Nothing is happening. And Pastor Chuck would say, keep, keep at it, keep at it, keep at it. Because I promise God's word is going to do something. And he says, usually around the three-month mark, you would see life start to be transformed. As they started getting this healthy diet of God's word every single week, he'd say, don't stray from it. Keep to it. You're going to see results. Keep to it. Preach God's word. Man, the early church, they placed a high priority on teaching the word of God. In fact, later in the book of Acts, you're going to see that the apostles were facing, well, they were some pretty serious pressure to get involved and oversee the distribution of the church's welfare program. You know, there were some, some of these groups that felt they weren't really being treated fairly and how things were being handled. And so there was this pressure on the, the apostles to get involved and take over. And you know what the apostles did? They didn't take on the additional responsibility. <laughs> No, instead they said, let's appoint seven men, men who had a good reputation, men who were filled with the Spirit, and they'd be the ones that would oversee it. It's, it was important. The church needed to do it. But the apostles saw themselves as called to teach God's Word. What was their reasoning that they appointed these guys? Because they were called to teach, and they didn't want anything to interfere with that. They wanted to give themselves completely to the teaching of the Word of God and to prayer. You're looking, you're looking at the teaching of the Word of God as one of the most important functions of the church. Listen, New Heights Church, that's what we're about. <laughs> we need to have the same priority. We need to make sure we prioritize God's Word in everything that we do. The early church was a learning, studying church, man. There were a lot of other things that Luke could have said about the early church, but the first thing that he talks about is the teaching of God's Word. The early church was was constant and consistent in teaching the doctrine of the apostles. Listen to this. I love how John Stott says this. He summarizes what was taking place here, and he says this. One might perhaps say that the Holy Spirit opened a school in Jerusalem that day. Its teachers were the apostles whom Jesus had appointed, and there were 3,000 pupils in the kindergarten. We note that those new converts were not enjoying a mystical experience which, which led them to despise their mind or disdain theology. Anti-intellectualism and the fullness of the Spirit are mutually incompatible because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. Nor did those early disciples imagine that because they had received the Spirit. He was the only teacher they needed and they could dispense with human teachers. On the contrary, they sat at the apostles' feet hungry to receive instruction and they persevered in it. It's powerful. George Barna says this. He says, the church is designed to be a teaching center. The church is designed to be a teaching center. However... Christians don't act like Christians because they don't think like Christians. Christians don't think like Christians because they don't understand their faith. I think we're seeing the result of this. I just told you the statistics. They said it was a generational thing. So you're talking three generations ago, they, they were faithful church attenders. And then their kids started saying, oh, we'll go when we please. And then you've got the millennials right now saying, we don't need, they don't even understand church. They don't even know the Bible. They don't know their gospel. That's why you're seeing so many people who wear the title Christian getting involved in things that Christians have no right to get involved in. 
And if you talk to them, they think they're doing the right thing because they don't know, the truth is not grounded in them. They don't know their Bible. A strong, healthy, and great church will be a Bible-teaching church. John MacArthur says this, novelty is not necessary. Regular, consistent teaching of biblical truth is what every Christian needs. Now, Luke stresses that in these early days, in spite, in spite of an experience as great as that of Pentecost, which honestly might have caused, caused them to focus on that experience, the disciples devoted themselves first to teaching. That's powerful. You ever wonder if it was a temptation for the early church believers to look back to Pentecost and, and maybe focus on the past? I mean, to experience something like that, they would have remembered the way the Holy Spirit came and how he used them to speak in those, to those people in Jerusalem. Each of them heard in their own language the wonder, wonderful works of God. Man, they might have longed to experience something like that again. In fact, I'll go as far as to say I'm sure they longed to experience something like that again, just like all of us who have experienced the power of the Holy Spirit want to experience that again, right? But we don't see any evidence in the text that would say that was the case, that they, would, they were just longing for that again and couldn't focus on anything else. Instead, what we read in our text is that they're not reveling in their past experiences. No, we find them reveling in the word of God. The word of God was enough for them. Think about this. The word of God was enough for these people that experience, and I would go as far as to say experience something that probably none of us have, not to that extent. And I think it's powerful, and it's so intentional, the Holy Spirit, that the first mark of this original spirit-filled church is that they studied the apostolic teaching. Something else, man. They prioritized God's word. It's a learning church. It's a learning church that grounds its experiences in and tests those experiences by the word of God. New Heights Church, we are a Bible-believing church. Bible-believing church. If you're new and you're visiting today or you're joining us online for the first time, we believe that the Bible is the only book that God wrote. We believe that it's perfect. It's authoritative. That everything else is to be subject to its truth. And that the big idea of the Bible... It all points to a person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that's important to understand. The Bible is about Jesus, not us. The Bible's not about us. Now, hang with me. (laughs) The Bible's for us, but it's about Jesus. You see, Luke is inspired by the Holy Spirit in writing this. And and, and make no mistake, God wants wants us to understand something here. The church functions through the preaching and teaching of God's word. People are not born with this innate understanding of Jesus and and his person and his work. That has to be preached. That has to be taught. Okay, we have to learn who Jesus is and what he has done. That's why it's such a tragedy that our churches have canceled so many of our Wednesday night services, our Sunday school. We, don't, we, we think one time a week is good enough. We're good. One, and then we want it to be done on, at a certain time because we got to get out to Golden Crow. I know it did close. It's a tragedy. Okay, the church functions through the preaching and teaching of God's word. 
has to be preached. It has to be taught. We have to learn who Jesus is. We have to learn what Jesus has done. And that's all recorded for us here in Scripture, thanks to the Holy Spirit's ministry. It's all in here. We have it at our fingertips. We have it more at our fingertips than any other generation has. You don't like reading? You can listen to it. You've got all kinds of different translations that you could read it in. Man, you can, you can listen to six sermons a day. Be careful who you listen to, but you can listen to six sermons a day. You need to understand Christianity is a word-based religion. God revealed himself to us in books and in words. Our culture says we find truth from within. That's a jacked-up idea, let me just tell you. Don't look there for help. Don't look within, within yourself. You ain't going to find nothing. We're all in trouble if that's what the approach we take. That's why Deuteronomy 6, chapter, or chapter 6, verse 6 through 9 says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as a frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doors, doorposts of your house and on your gates. Man, the Bible's important. It is. And I hope that, I, I hope you love coming here and love hearing God's word. I hope you're jumping into God's word at home. Moms and dads, of all the important things that you can do, I hope you are introducing your kids to the Bible. I really do, because like I said, there's all kinds of stuff out there that claim they're teaching the Bible, and it has nothing to do with the Bible or the work of Jesus Christ. And if they're not grounded in, in truth, if they're not grounded in God's word, they're going to be confused and they're going to be lost. And that's not just a responsibility that you have. That is a privilege. You get to be a part of raising up spiritual giants. So I hope you are introducing your kids to the... Don't, don't rely on VeggieTales. Don't rely on VeggieTales, man. You got to pick it up. Take your mantle, read the Bible, introduce your kids to it. The second thing is fellowship. You see that there in verse 42, fellowship. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. What does fellowship mean? Well, I'm going to be really honest with you. This, is, this word is so overused today. But not only overused, it's also extremely underrated. I mean, we don't give it justice that it's due. We just don't. It's such an important word, and it's an important function of the church. But we use the word fellowship to pretty much describe anything. And we just, anything and everything, we'll tack fellowship onto it. And, and we, we say we've fulfilled fellowship, right? So we, we oftentimes think of fellowship as just hanging out. Now, I grew up in the church. And when I was growing up, every church had a fellowship hall. In fact, we had a fellowship hall when I came. And we just, we just transitioned the fellowship hall into a wonderful family center where fellowship's going to take place, Okay. <laughs> We had a really good, I've, I've had good memories in that fellowship hall before I ever came here and pastored. That's where we would do the pancakes with missionaries. So we had some really good fellowship going on. And, uh, but that's what most people think of when you hear fellowship. I'm taken back to our old fellowship hall uh, where my dad pastored. And I'm taken back because I love the fellowship hall. Fellowship hall is where they serve donuts and coffee. I was that, I was that eight-year-old that when dad wasn't looking got the cup. And I put a little tiny coffee in and a whole lot of milk and sugar. I was that kid. And then I was wired for my kid's pastor. And uh, they thought I was ADHD. They thought I was everything. And they just didn't realize, no, I was fueled by coffee every Sunday morning. Nobody was looking. That's where I went. I love getting those donuts. 
I even loved the stale ones. My grandma would, if they weren't used by Sunday, she would feel like, okay, well, they got one more week of life left in them. We had donuts that were hard as a rock at North Shore Christian Center, okay? But we think of, we think of fellowship that way, right? But what does fellowship mean? It's not just eating donuts together, drinking coffee. Fellowship is the English word for an attempted translation of a very, very interesting Greek word. The word is koinonia, and we have no English equivalent for this word. So koinonia, you'll see it all throughout the New Testament. Same Greek word, but it's going to be different English words. The word means an intimate sharing of oneself with another. Koinonia is translated in all kinds of different ways all throughout the New Testament. Our text today, this verse we're looking at, it's the first time the word appears in the New Testament. But koinonia is uh, interpreted with another word in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 13. It says, They will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution. That's koinonia. For them and for all the others. And then Paul writes to the believers in Philippi, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share, that's koinonia, may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And that's Philippians 3.10. So even translations that claim to use a really close word-for-word consistency, like the ESV, that's why we preach from the ESV on Sundays, they don't always render koinonia as fellowship. And there's a reason. Koinonia, like I said, it can be used for a, a particular aspect of Christianity or the dynamic whole of Christianity living. So these different translations reflect the nature of koinonia, It depicts an interactive relationship between God and believers who are sharing this new life they have through Christ. And the Greek word captures the entirety of this relationship. It involves active participation in Christian communities, sharing in spiritual blessings, and giving in material blessings. Gentile believers in Macedonia had nothing in common with the Jewish believers. Nothing in Jerusalem except for Jesus Christ. That's what they had in common. Otherwise, culturally, they were two different separate people. They would not have been hanging out if it wasn't for Jesus. So there's no equivalent in English that really captures the whole spectrum of meaning and translators focus on a specific aspect, aspect of koinonia in each context. So in Acts 2, what we're looking at today, it focuses on this relationship among believers. In 2 Corinthians, it uses koinonia to express generosity in the community. Paul also uses koinonia to describe the way, like we read, he identifies with Christ's sufferings. John, in his first letter, uses koinonia to describe what connects us to God and to each other through Jesus. The different uses in the New Testament reveals that koinonia, listen, involves a much deeper level of fellowship than just getting together and eating donuts and drinking coffee. The most important aspect of koinonia is participation. Did you hear me? Participation. Jesus is what connects us. We should value all that we hold in common as followers of Jesus, regardless of cultural or denominational preferences. We have Jesus that brings us together. I can't tell you how many times I've had to tell church members, hey, focus on what brings us together, not on the differences. You know we're making an attempt to be a multicultural church. We're going to be a multicultural church. I believe it. I absolutely believe we will be multicultural, that one day we will see a representation of heaven. We've got all kinds of cultures all around here. We've got Ethiopian. We've got uh, uh, different African cultures. We've got uh, Spanish cultures. We've got Nepalese cultures. We've got Indian cultures that represent our community, and I believe one day we're going to reflect it. 
And I know, because I pastored an international church in Bangkok, and I still remember that very first meeting, Liz and I, who had no idea what we were getting ourselves into, we bring all of our team, I think there were 17 that day, 17 people representing 17 different cultures, and we brought them together and we asked the stupid question, what is church? Because <laughs> we got 17 different answers. Church looked different to them, but somehow we were able to fellowship. Somehow we were able to experience koinonia, because we focused on what we had in common instead of all the things that made us different. We had a a church. We went from 17 to over 55 different cultures represented in that church. It's possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. It is possible. And I'll tell you what, it's a reflection of heaven. And it's a powerful testimony to the world because they can't figure out how to do it. But we have the answers. It's focusing on what we have in common. It's the key to understanding koinonia in the New Testament. It's a spiritual gathering. It has this, it's centerpiece more than just coffee and donuts or just a shared activity. It's this social activity with spiritual matters. So that's important. I love how Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, says it, describes fellowship. It's a grace, nothing but grace that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brothers and sisters. So now we go to the third thing, to the breaking of bread. And this is unpacked later in verse 46, but it, you know, verse 46 says, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they partook of food with glad and generous hearts. Breaking bread here might refer to the Lord's Supper. It could, or it might simply mean a table of fellowship. Uh, but eating together with glad, generous hearts, that shows us that being together was a big thing to the early church. They valued their time that they could come together and be together. It was important. They loved to be together. They loved having meals together. It seemed that they were together which, with each other in this way almost every single day. Man, they were getting encouraged from each other. They were doing life together. It was a community. And it was some serious love and some serious passion going on. Now, whether Luke, Luke is addressing the Lord's Supper here or not, we know the early church practiced the Lord's Supper. The Lord's table, it was a special time, and Jesus promised to be present in a very special way. He's always present in worship, of course, but he's present in a special way during that time. In fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians ten sixteen that we are participating in the presence of Christ itself when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's powerful. And the early church, they devoted themselves to that. So I want you to think about this for a minute. They also believed that the Spirit of God was, was on each of them, right? Paul would later explain that each one came to the gatherings, and they didn't just come to the gatherings. They came to the gatherings ready to be used by the Spirit of God with words and insights for the different ones that would come. Do you get that? They did not come to church just to be fed. They came to church to feed or, or to, to, yeah, to feed. Yeah, not just to be fed, but to feed. And in feeding, they were fed. They came to church gatherings expecting to be in God's presence and expecting to be used by God. What do you come to church expecting? Are you expecting to meet with God or to hear a sermon? Are you, are you coming just to hear some good music? Are you going to your small group full of the Spirit? Are you ready to be used? What do you come to church expecting? And that's, that's a question only you can answer. Because I think sometimes churches have this pretty serious problem with what people expect when they go to church. Sometimes they, they have all these expectations, they forget that they're going to meet with God. You're going to meet with God and you're going to be used by God. Church is not just about you. Church is not just about me. It's about something so much bigger. It is. Someone who, who, who can't 
can't figure out how to be used. They're coming, they're complaining about the music or complaining about this or complaining about the, the preacher. You guys have a short little preacher that likes to, he's long-winded. It's more than, it, the church is more than me. Church is more than you. Do you see that? Do you come to church and you're ready to be used? Are you ready to be used? I had somebody in my own family. I can say it because it was in my own family. Not Liz, so don't look at Liz. Not one of my kids, but one of my, my relatives one time told me, man, I just can't go and I can't worship to that music. I said, well, you mean you can't relate to maybe that style? No, no, I just can't. I won't worship God to that kind of music, he said. It's just old school. He was talking about a church that I really liked in Springfield, Missouri. Liz and I, our first years, we went there. It, it, but it was maybe, maybe older in style. And just so you know, if I could do church my own way, we'd have the Gaither band up here every week, okay? <laughs> I'm old school. <laughs> Get some Glenn Campbell style going. I, I told my cousin, oops, <laughs> I told my friend, <laughs> what do you mean you can't worship? You can't worship God because you don't like the style? The song's too old for you? You don't know what worship is. Man, who cares if you're reading it from a hymn book? Focus on God. The focus is not on you or your preference or your style. Get in this chapel and worship God, the God of the universe, the God who created us, the God who sent his son to save you, the God who died on a cross for your sins. You can't worship God. Man, Liz and I had to worship God in a mud hut. We had to go to, we had to, go to skyscraper. I've worshiped God in an old brothel, for crying out loud, an old brothel in Dawson City, Yukon Territory, that was converted into a church. And these guys worshiped a little different. It was, they sat on a little drum thing and just played the guitar. None of them even had, they were all wearing flip-flops and drinking coffee. I worshiped God when I went into that building. Was it my style? No. Not into lighting candles everywhere. I'm afraid it's going to be a fire. But man, I found a way to worship God. I think sometimes churches have a very serious problem with what they expect when they come to church. Now, I love sports, all kinds of sports. In fact, I would go as far to say that I'm a sports fanatic. I can watch sports all day. I can talk about sports all day. And I can attempt to play sports all day. I didn't say play well. I just said I can play sports all day. You can ask my wife. She absolutely despises sports. She hates it. She hates that it's on our TV all the time. She hates that it's, I can't, she will purposefully, and I hate this, but I love you. We can't go to a, we go to a restaurant, she won't let, she will make sure, she'll tell the, the host or whatever, please put us in a place where he's not positioned to see a TV. <laughs> it's not fair. I'm, I can do two things at once, babe. <laughs> but I love, I love going to gatherings, especially when it comes to big games, when it comes to, to local teams. I love that when we were in the Super Bowl, the Bengals, we, <laughs> if you haven't noticed, I'm, I'm with them now. If when the Bengals were in the Super Bowl, everybody at the church was wearing Bengals gear, going to games. We were wearing the colors. I loved it, right? We're all decked out in our gear. We got our team colors on. We pump each other up. We talk about the players. We talk about the game. We show off our knowledge of the sport or a lack of, and we, we go expecting to have a good time. Why do we go to events like that with more expectation than when we, bring, we come to a place like this? Why? When we're coming to meet with the Spirit of God, why don't we bring that kind of anticipation and that expectation in the house of God? Why? 
It's a fair question. Why? People do all kinds of things during worship. All kinds of things. Man, they'll Google scores from the latest game. I've never done that. (laughs) They'll sit there and think, man, I can't worship this kind of music. They'll just sit there holding their cup of coffee. You know, there are multiple things in the Bible people do in the presence of God. None of the things I just mentioned is one of them. Man, why do we come to church? What are we expecting? What are we expecting? Man, when, when the worship team comes up here, and, and the whole goal is to lead us into the presence of God, whether, whether you like the style or whether you like the, the presentation, if we just close our eyes, man, we, we can enter into the presence of God, the presence of the Almighty God. We can experience the power of the Holy Spirit. Lastly, prayers. Here we go. We're going to close, I promise. We move forward in the work of God on our knees. Do you hear me? It was this way in the past, and it's going to be this way in the future. A prayerless church will be a powerless church. Prayer was the source of the life in the early church. It was important as oxygen to the human body. It was their air they breathed day in and day out. It was central, driving force of everything that they did. Today, it's a struggle just to get a five-minute prayer meeting on a weekly basis. And I'm convinced one of the diseases of modern evangelical church, especially in America, is we have taken that which was fundamental in the early church, and we have made it supplemental in our churches today. That concerns me. We've taken that which the early church counted as fundamental, and we've made it supplemental to where prayer is an optional program for a faithful few as opposed to the driving force behind everything the church does. What does it mean to say that they devoted themselves to prayer? Because it's an important question. We see it. It's a, it's a kind of a theme in the book of Acts. Prayer is a big deal. In fact, over 30 times it's mentioned that they prayed. Over 30 times in the book of Acts. Prayer is a big deal. In this next part, I'm indebted to Pastor David Platt as we and the worship team can come back up. I'll finish here, I promise. I'm indebted to David, Pastor David Platt for this next part, but the early church prayed because they understood that God was the one who would supply everything they need. God supplies everything we need. Here is a secret the early church knew that affected the way that they prayed. It should help us today, too. We, we should understand this. I, I want to jump to Acts chapter 17, and I think I've got it on the screen, but Acts 17, now this verse doesn't specifically talk about prayer, but it teaches us a lot about prayer and about how they viewed prayer in the early church. So Acts 17, in Acts 17, Paul's speaking. He's speaking at a place called Mars Hill. Liz and I have been to this place. He's talking to some some guys who absolutely wanted nothing to do with what Paul was saying. (laughs) But that didn't stop Paul. He's preaching Jesus. And listen to what he tells them. Acts 17, verse 24 and 25, it says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and on earth and does not live in temples built by hands. Okay, so we get what Paul's talking about here. Paul's talking about God's sovereignty. Now listen to verse 25 about the God who supplies everything we need. Listen, he says, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Wow. Wow, think about this. This ought to change your prayer life. 
Just think about how it relates to the the way we pray. I'm going to read it one more time. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Here's the key that the early church knew about prayer. The secret they knew was that the key to seeing the power of God in the church is not found in serving God, but in being served by God. Listen, this is important. The key to seeing the power of God in the church is not found in serving God, but in being served by God. The early church did not have this mindset that they're gonna go out and provide for the needs of God and do his job for them. They didn't, they didn't think like that. They prayed, they prayed a whole lot. That's why Luke tells us that they were devoted to prayer because they understood, they knew that God would accomplish his job. Whose job? God's job through them if they prayed. You see, this is crucial. Prayer is not so much about, uh, as much as it is about him or about his will or, or about us. It's about him, about his will. It's about partnering with him to accomplish his will. That's the power of prayer. When we get to pray, we're coming to him and we're joining him. We're working with God to accomplish his purpose and his will. Peter's letting God work his power Or prayer is letting God work his power through us. And when we pray, God will supply everything that we need to accomplish his will. Think about it. Man, we are a self-sufficient people. We think all the time, well, we're going to go out. We're going to do a good work for God. That's not the point. We fall on our faces and we ask God to do his work through us. That is accomplishing God's will. We've said it before so many times that prayer is not not just what fuels the ministry, it is the ministry. It is the ministry. Man, God stands ready to give. He stands ready in all of our lives. And in New Heights Church, he stands ready to give, to supply everything we need to impact this world. David Platt goes on and says, much of our poverty in prayer is due to the fact that we don't see him as the great grace giver that he is. He stands ready to give what does the Bible say? You have not because you asked. You, you do not ask. God is ready to supply everything we need. He's sovereign over everything in the world and he's ready to supply everything that we need. Why did they pray? Why should we pray? Because they were utterly dependent on God. We need to be utterly dependent on God. Acts 4.33 says, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Literally, it means mega power was on the church. They had mega power from God. And as we go through the book of Acts this next year, we're going to see so many times over and over again, they prayed and they saw results. In John 15, 5, it says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But listen, here it is. But apart from me, you can do nothing. New Heights Church, do we really believe this? Do we really believe that apart from prayer for the power of God, we can accomplish nothing? This is God's word. This is truth. We're just wasting our time. We are wasting our energy if it's apart from prayer for the power of God. It's like a hamster that runs on a wheel. My daughter has an ugly little hamster that goes on that wheel nonstop at night, wasting its energy. It runs on a wheel. It's not going anywhere. Why is it running? That's what the church does when it doesn't pray. We're wasting our time and our energy. We ain't going anywhere without prayer. And as you look through the book of Acts, you're going to see every single major breakthrough comes in response to prayer for the power of God. 
We live in a day in a society where everything is about more work, more programs, more ideas, more methods. Man, we gotta come up with something creative. We gotta do something better. We've gotta compete is what I've been told over and over. You're competing with so many things. I'm not competing with the world. I hate, and I mean, I absolutely hate that this lie has crept into the church. We don't need to come up with new ideas. We don't need to come up with new programs or new methods. We need to get on our knees. We need the power of God. You get me? New Heights Church, we need more prayer and more prayer and more prayer for the power of God to work. Because guess what? Our loved ones who are struggling with addictions, our loved ones who don't know Jesus, who don't have hope, are not going to come in because we have some cool method or some cool stage. They're going to only experience God's grace through the power of God. We need to get on our knees and pray, God, it's about you. You've got to move. It's time for you to move. We've done everything we can. Now we need the real, authentic power of the Holy Spirit to move in lives. We have got to be a church that prays. Let's close. Father, we love you so much. We love your word. We love the fact that we get to be a part of your church. That one day you're going to come back for us. You have called us. If we have put our faith in you, you have called us to be a part of the church and to make a difference in this world in fulfilling and carrying out your mission. There are too many spectators in the church today. Not not in this church. (laughs) But there are too many spectators. God, we don't want New Heights Church just to be another religious organization. We want to be a movement. We want to see people saved. God, would you burden us as a church corporately to begin to pray, not just individually, but begin to pray together. God, what you're doing around our nation, you can do here. We wanna see you move. We wanna see our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, our family members who are lost and struggling and hopeless come and experience your grace and your mercy and your power to overcome. So move in our church. This is your church. This is your church, not mine not anybody else's. This is your church. We want to see you move and we want to see lives change. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody says,